Ladies and gentlemen, please take your seats. The show is about to begin. End of the day. End of the day. It's all about practicing, practicing medicine. Practicing medicine at the end of one. So who talks first? You talk first. I talk first. Good morning, evening, or whatever time of the day it is for you out there listening. Welcome to the show. At the end of the day, this is a podcast about the lost art of medicine for those who are dissatisfied with healthcare status quo. I'm Andy DeLeo, better known as Cancer Geek, and I've got my co-conspirators with me. What's going on, Andy? Good morning. So what's what's been going on in your lives this last week? Well, I think uh, everyone is getting ready for the elections and to see what's going to happen. I think that's a fair assessment of this week. That might be why I'm in my emotional panic room right now. <laughs> yeah, I think uh, everyone's making sure that they've got their cars filled with gas, cash on hand, bug out bags and watch and eat their popcorn and see what happens. Interestingly enough, I haven't done a single one of those things. (laughs) (laughs) I'm way behind the eight ball. We know who's going to perish first. (laughs) Exactly. Well, we're recording this on the day after election on Wednesday, November 4th. And as of right now, we have no idea who the winner is for the presidential race because there's still millions of mail-in ballots that need to be counted as well as electoral things so i'm sure in a few days we'll know and by the time this comes out that maybe there's a winner but if you need emotional support you know who to call a trained professional so i'm going to reference a number uh, to both of you and i want you to just share with me what is the first thing that that comes to your mind when i call out this number and the number is 36.2 million. Do you guys have any idea like what that means or, or, you know, if someone was going to test you on a quiz, walk up to you randomly and be like, Hey, have you guys ever heard of the number 36.2 million? What do you guys think? What is LeBron James annual salary? (laughs) Possibly. Ooh, that's a good answer. My guess would be 36.2 million. If we were talking science class, biology, I would say, how many insects can you find in one square yard of dirt or one cubic yard of dirt? I like that guess too. I'm going to share with you what the number 36.2 million means to me. So as AJ just alluded to, he kind of gave away the date of when we're recording this. Uh, which means that in two days from now, it's November 6, 2020. And what November 6th represents to me is that happened to be the date in which my father passed away. My father's birthday was October 27th, and then a few days later, on November 6, 2013, he passed. So this will mark the seven-year anniversary of, of my father's passing. But more importantly is the significance of the number 32.6 million. As I sort of over the years have reflected about all of those, you know, precious moments, learnings, different things that I've taken away from my father's life. What I started to think about is all of those moments that mattered and all of the different things that either prior to me being born and and being part of my father's life and story or all the things that he did prior to me being around. 
what I started to do is actually do the math of every single minute that my father was on this planet throughout his 69 years and a few days. And what that number actually equates to is, is a really big number. It's 36.2 and so many you know, other kind of decimal points, or not decimal points, but placeholders beyond that. But if you round it, it's 32.6 million minutes. If we think about that, I think there's something a little bit that can be freeing. Some people might think I'm morbid about it, but you know, I take the age that I'm at right now, and if my life will have a similar trajectory to my own father's because of our DNA, the zip code in which we live in, some of the choices that we've made throughout our own journeys, if they take a parallel path, that means hopefully I've got 32.6 million minutes or moments in my life that I can make a choice to do something that is impactful, to do something that is, is my truth, and to do something that elevates not only myself, but the people around me, the people in my community, and this, this thing that we all focus on called medicine. Oftentimes, what I've also done is I've taken that totality of 36.2 and subtracted sort of where I am in my life to give me how much I have left. And that's where the, the freeing part, at least for me, comes in, is to realize that time is not infinite. There, it's finite. There's a beginning and there's an end. And even though none of us know really when that end is, if I at least have some insight into when the end may be, will I live my life differently? Will I make different choices? And will I do the difficult work that needs to be done sometimes in order to dance with fear, to pass that you know lizard brain, uh, that fight or flight response in, in our minds, to do something that elevates those around me, that pushes the agenda, that from my perspective, changes medicine for physicians and patients. And so it was really important for me because I've used the hashtag 30, the actual word 30 spelt out, the number six, PT for point two, and then an M afterwards to signify 36.2 million. And so now that I've kind of given a little bit of a backdrop on what that number means to me and sort of the reason or the rationale behind my thinking, understanding sort of that framework or that thought process, is it interesting to you? Is it a way to reframe the challenges that, that you've got in the present? I have an initial thought because it ties in very well to what we talked about with Stoicism. And why is Stoicism becoming such a very big topic with a lot of people right now? And I think it's because there is a cultural bubble starting to grow on the understanding of the shortness of life, the carpe diem, the, as Thoreau said, sucking the marrow out of the bones of life. When you were talking about the 36.2 million seconds, it reminds me of a calendar that I have seen people post online and with the phrase memento mori on it, which is Latin for remember you will die, or remember that you will die. And a lot of Stoics have been 
printing these calendars off. And what they do is they take the average life expectancy of a person in America, and each square is representative of one week of life. And so it gives you this type of bird's eye view of this is how much time I have in my life. And I've already spent, you know, you fill it in for your age. I've already spent this much time. So what am I going to do with my life with what I have left remaining, statistically speaking? Right. And I think that that something like that is a good reminder of how important it is to be present every day and how important it is to not slough things off for tomorrow and not worry about other things. It, it helps put things into perspective. And I think with what we're talking about today, we're, we're talking about death in, in a positive way and in a very stoic way. And I think that looking at it from these perspectives helps us to grasp how precious every moment we have is. And that's me. And I'm curious, Wes, if you agree or disagree and and what, where you come with this perspective. Yeah, so I would uh, tend to agree with both of you guys. You know, death is a very personal thing and affects people differently and how you react to it and what you do with, you know, after you've mourned um, a loss of someone. But, you know, I'm going to take this in a different direction a little bit and talk a little bit religiously uh, about, you know, what some of the rituals are are within my culture and my religion and one of the things is if you know that someone in your family a family member or someone in your community has passed away it is recommended or advised to actually go to the burial ground and when you go there you're actually burying that person you actually see that person go into the ground and you see them the dirt being placed on top of them i think that is that feeling that you get the direct connection that you get with death and to remind you that life here is finite, you know, and to Andy, your point, what do we do with that knowledge that we have that life is finite? How do we make it better? And, you know, I applaud you for what you're doing and this movement that you're having 36.2 million, um, where you have this movement online to celebrate your dad's life and all the, uh, the moments that he's had in his life and the impact that he's had not only on you, but his friends and, and relatives around him. I, I think it's really good. It's important to remember that and to remember people for what they've done in a positive light and to remember that we must live in the moment we are today um, and treat it as our last. And maybe I'm I'm slightly warped. So, uh, Wes, you can tell me if, if you relate to this or not. But I also think that there's a slight difference for many of us that have physically made the choice to dedicate our lives to working or caring uh, or educating ourselves around cancer. Oftentimes, you know, we see the vast majority of patients, especially in radiation oncology, come in and we know that while we build that relationship with them, that they're going to go on and they're, they're going to survive and they're going to live the rest of their life and the cancer probably is not going to be what takes them. They'll, you know, mo most often go on to, to live a, you know, longer, normal, healthy life, and they'll end up passing away from, you know, natural causes or, or something else. And I think that is one of the things, when I think about 36.2 million, 
I think oftentimes of the, the patients that I've met and the stories that I've heard and how you see in such a drastic moment of time in which person's life is fundamentally altered forever when they're told you have cancer and to watch how they make conscious choices to sort of walk through that journey, how their loved ones, their support network, the family around them sort of rally around to support and, and be there. And to see those different stories, I think for me, has always been very positive. It's been very enlightening. It's been very refreshing. And it's reminded me that in those moments in which it seems life is at its worst, that on a daily basis, people are not sitting back. They're not sort of allowing life or that decision to overcome and redefine them. They're making a conscious effort and choice to push back, to fight, to live, and to make the most out of those moments that they have. And I know, at least for me, that's sort of been this, this journey, which has kind of culminated in this fact that many of us may have way more moments than 36.2 million. But for me, if that is my guiding light, it reminds me that I need to make the most out of not just the day, but the time that I spend with the both of you, I need to, to make the most and, and do my best when it comes to you know my day job, uh, when it comes to the other aspects in, in my life that I'm passionate about. So I guess, OS, for you, do you have a similar experience, you know, growing up or, you know, sort of having your professional life touched by cancer as well? So I don't often talk about this, but I'll share it with the two of you. My daughter uh, suffers from a rare condition called cystic fibrosis, and the life expectancy has gotten better, uh, you know, thanks to therapeutics than, now than it has uh, before, but it is a life-altering disease. You know, every day waking up knowing that today might be the last day or, you know, we might be one day closer to the end or knowing that, you know, as a father, I may have to one day, you know, come to terms with the fact that she might not be around. It really plays into your psyche and it does affect you in ways. And so one of the things that I've make it really important is to spend every moment I can with her and doing things with, with my kids and, you know, really being in the moment with them kind of to really cement these memories, knowing one day that they, she might not be here to take on these memories, you know, right now, thank God she's healthy. She's active. You know, we're doing her therapies and her regiments and, you know, a regular visits to the doctor's office to kind of keep her that way. But, you know, things can change very quickly. Um, and especially the times that we live in with COVID, it, it's a really big concern and a, and, a, and a fear of ours. But, you know, to your point, it's it doesn't have to be cancer. It doesn't have to be one disease or another disease. Um, it's just really important to make the most out of the moments that you have with your loved ones. Thank you for sharing that, OS. I, I think it's, you're right, it's spot on. It's about consistent reminder and so AJ, turning it back to you from your perspective, are there events or things in your life that have made you 
more aware or in tune with moments and in the importance of of being in the moment yeah i would say i don't even think i shared this with you andy but my biological father died when i was two years old he was 26 when he died and so when i turned 27 i had a really hard time dealing with that because i had never really subconsciously accepted the fact that i might have a normal life i just kind of expected not to live that long because my dad died when, I, when he was 26. So I just kind of subconsciously assumed that was my fate. So when I turned 27 and came to terms with the fact that I am living longer than my father did, that was really weird. And that was very hard to work through. And that really helped with understanding that I don't want to piss away my life. Even though I may be a late bloomer coming to these thoughts and ideas, I have realized how important each day is and how important it is through so much of the stuff that I've read to be present in the moment. And that includes being as distraction free as possible to be present for not only yourself, but for others. And kind of like what Wes is, is saying, even, even though our children aren't, aren't struggling or dealing with anything uh, health related, I want to be present in every interaction and every moment and to cherish those moments because we have no idea what the future holds. There is no guarantee for anything. It's not a morbid thing to talk about, but it's a realistic thing. We need to be able to have these conversations with one another. I think we need to, kind of what what you referred to as a reference going to the burial ground when someone in your community passes. And even, even that phrase passes, why? Why are we scared of saying dies or they died um, has always been my question. But that that connection, that reality setting moment that this person is no longer with us. We are so far removed from death in American culture. It is very hard to deal with when it happens because it is such a giant shock and blow because we don't experience it unless it's something or someone very near and dear to us. And I think that is probably psychologically unhelpful to be so removed from just the natural order of things from the point of where does our chicken come from? Where does our beef come from? To, you know, someone in our neighborhood died, they passed away. And being able to accept that fact. And I think that's why, and I'll let West talk about it, because it's our second topic today, but why having the setting and the place to talk about death is so important for us because we don't naturally have that happening anymore. And I think that's something we've lost to put into perspective a lot of things. And especially in this time of election, if we lose our perspective of life and death and we lose our perspective of the frailty of life, the shortness of life, the beauty of life, and cherish it, how does that reflect in how we make decisions for future generations? I completely agree. I think that was beautifully said, AJ. And so what I want to ask the both of you, as well as the people that listen to this podcast, is that in your interactions, whether they're online on Twitter, or if they're on LinkedIn, or if they're on Instagram, or you know, whatever sort of that online aspect is, 
when you see someone say something about a decision or a moment or they share something that kind of highlights whether it's the the beauty of life the frailty of life if it happened to be a challenging decision or a great you know sort of example of of leadership in a moment that i encourage people to use the hashtag 32 with the the actual word spelled out 30 the number six the letters pt for point the number two and an m to signify 36.2 million and i want this to be a reminder to you know not only myself but to all of us that life is fragile life is important but the beauty of it is is that we have the power to choose every single minute of our lives what we do with it and how we sort of act in that moment and i think this is a, a really good way to sort of remind not only ourselves but those people around us um, so that's that's kind of my call to action and, and my ask with 36.2 since we're sitting down and, and talking about this uh, I think it's a, a really good transition into our second topic. Imagine yourselves, instead of going to a McDonald's to have your hotcakes and egg McMuffin in the morning, what if there was actually a cafe that was focused on death? Again, I am going to reiterate the fact that for all of our listeners and whoever's out there, please use that hashtag. Please take a, step, a, a moment to think and to really you know, put your thoughts behind what is the meaning of, of this finite life and what do we need to do for our interactions with one another. So that being said, I want to talk a little bit about Death Cafe. So Death Cafe is a concept uh, which was started in Europe, mainly East London around 2011. It was an ideology in which people could gather together and openly discuss death. Um, it was not meant to be a mourning group, but rather to engage individuals in conversations related to death. It's an idea that life is finite. And what does death mean? And how do we prepare or get comfortable with the idea of death? So the premise of Death Cafe is that strangers will get together at a restaurant um, and oftentimes eat cake, drink tea, and discuss death. So there's typically a host or a moderator, but there is never an agenda. There's no objectives, there's no theme, and there's never any guest speaker or speakers or lecturers. These sessions are completely ad hoc and they invite different ideas and perspectives related to death. The main objective of this group is to increase awareness of death with a view to helping people make the most of their finite lives. So I was looking around online and I came across uh, some quotes that people have shared from these death cafe sessions. So I want to share a couple of them with you. So one quote that I found was, if I give you three years and death is going to come knocking at your door, are you going to sit at home in your pajamas and stay in your comfort zone? So another quote was in med school, you hear things said with certainty. If we do this or that for the patient, they'll get better when they just as likely get worse. Funny though, this psychotherapy, the therapist infuses their remarks with ambiguity. Not sure this will work at all. Another quote, the doctor said she's going to have quality of life. And I answered, yeah, maybe in another life. <laughs> another quote, 
Um, and again, we'll, we'll talk through these in a couple minutes, but I just want to share these quotes just to kind of engage you guys and get you to start thinking and understanding what happens in these ca uh, death cafes. So another quote, my father had this fear of dying and he talked to me about it, but I was just a little girl and naturally I'd cry and he'd want me to cry because that would show him how much I loved him. I don't think my father ever knew how much this harmed me. And this is the final quote. I remember sending her a postcard from the petrified forest, saying that this is when the dead when this dead forest has lasted forever, but its transformation is more magical than when it was alive. When there's no life, it's full of life. So these are some examples of things people have shared in these groups, and then a discussion happens naturally around these comments. So death cafes have taken place in over 74 countries since 2011, with an estimated 116 thousand individuals in attendance. So this seems to be a trend that's acquiring attention to have open dialogue and an outlet to discuss the inevitable. So a few years back when I was at the Center for Innovation at Mayo Clinic, we had some presenters for our annual Transform Conference that built a card game to talk about death. And I'm completely blanking on the name of the, the card game. And it wasn't like playing Uno Attack or anything like that. But it was meant to have discussions around lighthearted and serious issues about end of life. So some of them were super fun, like what would be your ultimate playlist at your funeral? And thinking through like, oh man, how would, you know, it's kind of a fun thing to think about. What would the song track list be? And through all of these, these discussions, just talking with other people, I don't think I've ever cried in front of somebody that was a stranger or uh, not a close relative before like this because there was so much emotional connection and community built in that and that I think is something that is so great about these ideas of death cafes is we are forced to confront things that we just stuff down and hide because I, I truly believe we're so disconnected we're not sure how to talk about it or address it and we are just ignoring it we're we're playing dumb and i think that's going to hurt us as a culture in, in the long run but having gone through that i would love maybe we should do a bonus episode where the three of us do a death cafe and i can find those cards and maybe get some of the questions on a google doc that we can share and talk through them because i think just that process would be so worthwhile uh, I think the game that you're referring to is uh, My Gift of Grace. Yes, thank you. See, I still remember. Googling it now. For me, the whole notion of death cafes is interesting. I like it. I think back, I can't remember the name of the movie, but all I remember is the woman sitting at the head of the table, and every time she said the word cancer, she couldn't actually say it like that. It was always and then, you know, she'd go throughout the movie and every time she had to say the word, it was always like, cancer. And I think the same thing about death. I think in our normal daily lives, I think as, you know, our loved ones, friends, family members, other people in our community that, that we know of, when something happens and either we know death is knocking on someone's door or death has recently impacted someone's life, many of us tend to, to kind of react the same way and, and we say, death, or we say, passing. 
we don't actually come out and just, uh, you know, address it head on. And something like a death cafe, I think, continues to make it more normal or easier to talk about. And I think that's important because, you know, I can attest to the fact that probably all the way up through my 20s, I pretty much thought I was invincible. I never thought about death. The fact of, you know, people being 80, 90 years old, that was still like four times of my life. And now that I'm slightly older than I was back in my 20s, starting to realize that, you know, 50% of my life or 25% of my life is what I have remaining, it changes my perspective. And so a lot of the the things that maybe I would not have done because of fear or because of worrying about someone else's opinions or thoughts, that's the way that I've sort of reframed it for myself. And I think that the death cafes gives that ability for many people to come in to talk about it uh, and just to, to normalize that conversation and the importance around it. So I think this is really cool and I actually kind of like the idea that maybe we invite somebody else who's got some experience in a death cafe and we actually host our own. I think that would be a, a really interesting sort of podcast. So with that being said, AJ, I went to UW Lacrosse. I'm a huge fan of lacrosse. You live slightly north, unfortunately, and on the wrong side of the Mississippi, but I'll forgive you. <laughs> uh, so, hey, what... listen, I love lacrosse. I, I can't tell you how much I love that town because it's, especially when they do their uh, yearly art block, where they they have this great festival for the local artists. It's so cool. AKA Oktoberfest. I'm just joking. <clears throat> uh, well, you know. There's a reason for the season. Yeah, so I wanted to talk about lacrosse. And I've mentioned this before in our podcast about what they did, and I found some good details about it. But let's take a step back and think about how much U.S. healthcare costs America. So right now, uh, our current level of cost expenditure is close to around $3 trillion total. And that's for, you know, hospital systems, overhead salaries, everything. And they're looking, projecting that by 2022, it's going to get raised up to $5 trillion. And that's a lot of money. What in the world is all of this money going to? And they're looking at it and saying, gosh, you know, nearly 30% of all Medicare spending occurs during the last six months of a patient's life. So the extrapolation for end-of-life care in the future are truly sobering is re reported in this article. And the idea is, if you look at Atul Gawande's um, documentary about how doctors die, I believe was the title, he did this really intriguing research into what do doctors do when they're at end-of-life? What does their end-of-life moments look like? Do they spend all of the money that they can to eke out another week or two of life or do they just go home and die with grace and dignity with their family and spoilers the latter's generally the case but what lacrosse did and lacrosse by the way is not a major metropolitan city for those of you who don't know lacrosse it's around fifty thousand people so this town of fifty thousand people 
has 96% of those who die having an advanced directive, meaning a living will. And what that what that does is that codifies their conscious decisions about how they would like to die. If you think about this from a healthcare expenditure, you have somebody sitting there, end of life, you know, it's your grandma, it's your great grandma or grandpa, and nobody knows what their wishes are. So the family argues, they have to wait till every family member flies in and has to be present. All of the children are trying to figure out what does mom or dad want. And now you have somebody on life support and doing all of this stuff for an extra week or two, which may have been avoided and unnecessary when mom or dad, grandma, grandpa, great grandma, great grandpa could have signed a an advanced directive saying, this is what I want. If I'm, if X, Y, Z, hey, DNR. If this goes away, yeah, keep me. This actually goes back to my biological father's death. So my biological father, his name was Lonnie. You know, I was two years old, so unfortunately I don't have any memories. I do have photos and I cherish those greatly. But when he when he died, he actually was hit in a motorcycle accident by somebody, <laughs> as ironic as it is, backing out of a funeral home. Didn't see him. And he wasn't wearing a helmet. He was on life support and basically the doctor said hey you have maybe a five percent chance of him ever coming out of this uh if he does survive he's going to be a drooling vegetable for the rest of his life and my mom at the age of 24 had to make the decision to say let him go and unfortunately that caused a huge riff in my family and now i have a, my biological side i haven't spoken to in decades because my mom was deemed the evil one who killed their quote-unquote golden child. When we say golden child, my grandparents are Roman Catholic and I have 12 aunt and uncles, and that's not an exaggeration. I have a dozen. He was one of 13 kids. This was a serious blow to the whole family, and they they it caused a, a huge rift. What could have been avoided is, you know, at 24, you don't think you're going to die, but if, if we start talking about these conversations and think about, yeah, living will is just like, I don't know, signing up for Netflix. You just say, yeah, if anything happens, this is at this time, this is what I want to have happen. And what lacrosse did is they went through and said, you know what? We want to have people have their wishes known and have it be a yearly thing we update. And they wound up having 96% adherence to those who are of a certain age and vulnerability to sign up for it. And it actually has dubbed lacrosse as the cheapest place to die in America. Which is, it's kind of a joke, but it's true. So AJ, so I think this is really interesting. Now, I'm willing to bet that people that are listening to this are thinking to themselves, how did that, how, how did this happen? Like, did they have some really cool app? Was it something that they pushed to their phones? Was it, you know, there, there had to be something sort of cool and sexy that enabled the community within lacrosse to do this. So can you share with us how they actually went about raising their numbers? Because I think originally they were like 2%. Uh, and they, you know, s slowly were able to, to achieve this, you know, 96%. So how did they do it? So to get to that 96% adherence, it took three decades to get there. And the sexy tech that they used was 
conversation. They made it part of the local DNA to just make it okay to talk about it. And this article did a great job talking about four key takeaways. And number one was that conversations and relationships matter. So it took, a, it took 30 years to make end-of-life discussions just part of the local DNA. It's just part of the culture. Everybody talks about it. And so it's kind of like going to the mechanic with your vehicle and they say, oh, your, or your headlight fluid's low. Well, if you never talk about your car, never get to know about a thing, then you could be taken advantage of knowing, oh, my headlights fluids are low. Well, that's weird. Or the high beam fluids. Um, yeah, I, did, I didn't know headlights had fluids, but thanks for letting me know, AJ. No. <laughs> well, it depends on what your, your and make your car is. So, <laughs> yeah. What, what they did is they just took the time. And that's, that's the thing with a lot of innovation like this is when it becomes part of the culture, when it becomes ingrained in the DNA of where you live, then it just, it's so much easier. And if you think, take a step back of our current political situation, if we didn't have something like libraries and someone introduced a publicly funded, paid from taxes offering like a library, we would say that this was socialism. It's a plot of communism. How dare you try to force your you know, beliefs on me for education. It, it, it all just comes with a slow burn. Now, the second thing that they learned about all of this is that innovation in end-of-life care requires highly personalized local solutions. And what that means is you want the patient or the person and their family at the center of the process and having healthcare professionals part of that local community. So much like death cafes, you know, that's a great jumping point. And your local healthcare professionals should most certainly be involved to answer any questions because we don't want to keep this tucked away in a, a corner of our psyche saying that's something I'll worry about later because we all have someone close to us who has died suddenly or unexpectedly. And the fact that we use that phrase unexpectedly is is maybe a sick part of our culture that, again, we're all going to die. We don't know when, we don't know how, but it's a fact of life. And that's just natural. It's this, to quote Disney, it's the circle of life, uh, which to be honest, watching Lion King with your kids has, for me, has brought up so many good conversations about life and death with my kids at such a young age that I'm normalizing the idea that people die and we have conversations about it. And we have had a close family friend die last year and having a five-year-old daughter at the time, having to process that and understand it. You know, we, we are Christians. So we talk about what happens after we die from our perspective, but we also talk about how this is, this is a fact of life that everybody will, will pass away. will die at some point and there's nothing to be sad about. We miss them. Let's, take the time to have the correct emotional response to mourn it, to mourn the person we lost and to remember them and to, to love them, but to also know that we cherish our time we had. And that's, that's the best part. The third takeaway from lacrosse is while the end of life advanced directive document is standardized, the process for each patient and family will be unique and intimate. So just having a, you know, 1084 form and 
telling people to fill it out didn't work and it doesn't work. It's not a technical skill to fill out this form, but it's something that requires engagement and a family, a journey to go through all this and really engage with those we most love and trust to to fill it out correctly. And I think that's part of it is carving out the time to do it and to do it right. And number four, and I think this is something we can all agree on, is the accessibility of records. So by embedding that advanced directive into the patient's EMR, all providers, all up and down the chain of care, have access to that and know what the patient's wishes are. So there's there's clarity of communication with that accessibility, and that's super important in my mind when you're dealing with anybody from your dentist to your physical, which I have to go do later today, and to your ER doc. They all are on the same page with what your wishes are and can make their decisions to respect those wishes better. So what's interesting with this, AJ, is that the very next paragraph after those sort those four key sort of takeaways in the article is the question that plagues medicine today. And it's, can this approach be scaled? And here's sort of my takeaway on this. And it'll be interesting to, to sort of see the, the reactions from you and OS on this. Everything that I heard within sort of the community of lacrosse and what they did it was an N of one solution. They had a commonality, which was the form. But to your point, it wasn't a technical issue on how to fill out the form or needing to educate people on what the form is. It had nothing to do with the form. What it needed was it needed a approach that was tailored not only to the community, but to the people within the community and the patients that they may become in the future and their core family members. And while the overall topic or goal was to sort of make this transition from 2% to you know what they ultimately achieved of 96%, but in order to do it, it was an N of one solution. And this is really a great demonstration on the power of, of N of one is that it scales. While maybe it takes a little bit more time, maybe it takes a little bit more effort, maybe it takes a little bit more elbow grease in order to make it engaging and effective and to get people to buy into it, it has the power to scale. And this is what we see inside of the community of lacrosse. And so, I guess I'll, I'll open it up to the both of you for, for your reactions on sort of my takeaway on it. The conversations have to happen for any scalability. Um, you know, I look at my own family and culturally, I, I think it's just something that's ingrained into us that we don't talk about death. We don't talk about, you know, what's going to happen um, if one of us passes, what are our wishes or what do we want or and you know, how are we going to medically what it is that we want to do? And it's something that we should openly discuss. You know, I, I think culturally there is this taboo around discussing death 
the more conversations you have and say, you know, even if I said to my brother, Hey, I'm, you know, I've got kids now, I'm going to have, a, I'm going to set up a will. Just that dialogue, just a simple dialogue of saying, I'm setting up a will, I think could force the conversations. And that's what I think lacrosse did is just started having these conversations at the end of one and watching that spread and you know grow to scale and then eventually getting to 96 percent compliance rate as other people got onto the bandwagon i think that's absolutely the key to success of this kind of a program yeah i think all of it stems to like you said os you you just start the conversation anyway anyhow where the rubber meets the road for a terrible idiom is just understanding that this is something we have to do as a culture i think it starts with you it starts with me it starts with just even recording this podcast and if we can let's let's start and you know what i personally don't have an advanced directive filled out do you too i do not i do not so maybe we should do that together and part of this podcast process is learning and growing uh, as three co-hosts and maybe we should just challenge ourselves and we'll challenge those listening let's let's do an advanced directive and let's use your hashtag 36.2 million to post a picture on Twitter, Instagram, wherever, showing that you're doing it or showing that you've done it. So I'm actually going to find out how do I do an advanced directive right now. I like that idea. I think it's uh, I, I think it's another way to, to make things actionable. Uh, and with that, I'm going to um, I'm just going to read one of my favorite poems and and sort of close it because I think we've we've talked about a lot of things. We've got some actions to take. Uh, and I think for me, this has been a really great sort of topic that everything has intertwined to making sure that our lives matter, the moments that we sort of choose to act upon matter, and it's important to remember that in, in hopefully hashtag 36.2M uh, will do exactly that. Uh, so with that... Um, one of my favorite poems happens to be by Robert Frost, and it's uh, entitled The Road Not Taken. Two roads diverged in a yellow wood, and Sarai could not travel both, and be one traveler. Long I stood and looked down one, as far as I could, to where it bent in the undergrowth. Then took the other, as just as fair, and having perhaps the better claim, because it was grassy and wanted wear, though as for that passing there had warned them really about the same. And both that morning equally lay, in leaves no step, had trodden black. Oh, I kept the first for another day, yet knowing how way leads on to way. I doubted if I should ever come back. I shall be telling this with a sigh, somewhere ages and ages hence. Two roads diverged in a wood, and I, I took the one less traveled by, and that has made all the difference. And so what I would like to do is end on that token say that this is a wrap for today. Thank you so much for joining us. You can tell us the good, the bad, and the plain old ugly by emailing us at theendpod at gmail.com. And I'm AJ Montpetta. You can find me on Twitter and LinkedIn at AJ Montpetit. And I'm Owes Mirza. You can find me on Twitter at Owes F. Mirza. And as always, you can find me, Andy DeLeo, on all of the social networks as at Cancer Geek. And remember, just like Thoreau said, at the end of the day, it's all about sucking the marrow out of life and doing it at the end of one.